And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Shane Morris, senior writer at the Colson Center. Shane, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, Dan, it's uh, an honor to be back with you today. I've uh, enjoyed our conversations before, and I I know I'll uh, enjoy it as well today. (laughs) I don't even have a firm idea exactly what we're going to talk about, so uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun when we do it that way. First of all, Shane, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also a podcast that you do and all of that? Yeah, so I am one of the senior writers here at the Colson Center. Uh, so for about 10 years now, I've been helping to write the Breakpoint commentary as well as The Point. Uh, I'm a co-host on the Breakpoint podcast and have been uh, doing the Breakpoint This Week program for a long time. We've just passed that over to uh, my colleague Maria Baer. But uh, that's because I've started a new podcast at the Colson Center, and we're on about episode 45 now. It's called Upstream. And the goal with Upstream was really to uh, to address something that Chuck Colson liked to say. He, he often remarked that politics is downstream from culture. And what he meant by that is that the things we see happening in Washington, D.C., in legislatures, in courtrooms, in the White House, uh, really reflect to a great degree uh, trends that have been you know, fermenting in the culture for a long period of time. And so we want to really go upstream on my podcast to uh, get at the ideas, the assumptions, the sentiments that are really just driving our, our entire culture and including our political process and understand why they're so important and, uh, you know, how they're shaping the way we think in, uh, in modes that we may not even acknowledge from day to day. So I've got, I've had, uh, you know, everyone from scientists and authors and musicians to, uh, y- you know, um, uh, politicians and uh, philosophers and, and you name it on the podcast. And it's just been, um, it's been excellent and a really enjoyable experience and a learning, uh, sort of a, a learning opportunity for me as well as for my listeners. Now, how could a listener find this upstream podcast? Easiest way is to go to colsoncenter.org forward slash upstream, and you'll see all of the uh, most recent episodes there as well as kind of an intro video to the podcast. Oh, that's simple enough. Um, One contact that we had a while back, it was an email, and I really liked your input, and it was regarding, um, you know, we talk about a lot of issues here on on Redeemer, certainly on Breakpoint and, and other broadcasts that our ministry carries, and sometimes we wander into an area that has to do with uh, sexual purity as opposed to what the world is trying to push. And it's not that we're always looking for these things, but um, why do we talk about uh, that subject over the air? Because because I had some feedback from one of our listeners and said, hey, you guys are covering this all the time. What's going on? Uh, could, you, could you guide our thinking a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a common question. And often I hear it phrased like this, Dan, that Christians are obsessed with sex. We just we won't stop talking about this. We need to get over it and just get on to um, more important, more sort of gospel-centered activities like helping the poor and the sick and the uh, and the marginalized and so forth. And it, it can be sort of a powerful um, rebuttal or uh, or or rhetorical line from our secular culture, particularly those who are very critical of um, the evangelical church. In fact, in 2013, uh, the late Rachel Held Evans really exemplified this with uh, an op-ed that she wrote at CNN 
on why millennials are leaving the church. And her whole explanation for that was that, well, you know, the church is obsessed with these culture war issues, um, at least the conservative church is, and it's causing millennials and Gen Z to really be just turned off by Christianity. We want an end to the culture wars. In fact, she wrote, the evangelical obsession with sex can make Christian living seem like little more than sticking to a list of rules. Hmm. We want to be challenged to live lives of holiness, not only when it comes to sex, but also when it comes to living simply, caring for the poor and oppressed, and pursuing reconciliation. Now, I I think we should recognize that it is possible to have an overemphasis on sex and to kind of uh, um, focus in on this as if it's the the chief sin. And and C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity mentioned that the the core of Christian morality does not lie here in the issue of sex. He thinks it's elsewhere. He thinks it's in spiritual pride um, and humility. But the uh, the the point is that the uh, the critique of modern evangelical discourse has been largely, well, you guys are obsessed with sex. Um, the problem with that is, as I observe in this uh, piece I wrote at Breakpoint last year. Progressives keep promising conservative evangelicals that, you know, they'll be our friends if only we stop harping on sex and serve people. Uh, But every time evangelicals try to serve people, progressives just want to harp on sex. And the example I used was um, Samaritan's Purse when they set up the overflow hospital in, uh, you know, Central Park. Oh, yes. They took patients from Mount Zion Hospital, uh, over 300 uh, in total they ended up treating there. And that's run by uh, Franklin Graham obviously. And when they did that, there was this just overwhelming critical attack on Samaritan's Purse and the field hospital, uh, because not because they were, they were doing anything um, you know, subpar with their care or they were discriminating against anyone, but because they held Christian beliefs about sex and they required their members and their, uh, and their participants to hold those beliefs. Uh, and so the LGBT lobby, um, Mayor de Blasio, um, the, a bunch of journalists, the, the list just went on and on and on, were, were sort of uh, warning that this organization could be a real threat uh, to New York's LGBTQ residents and, um, and that this threat of discrimination warranted you know, investigation, which eventually the mayor did. Uh, it turned out that the Civil Rights Commission found no evidence that Samaritan's Purse had discriminated against anyone in their treatment. Uh, and then the New York Times went ahead and ran a piece anyway, just sort of reviewing the gripes they had as Samaritan's Purse packed up and and left, despite there being no evidence of anything actually ever happening. You know, it was all smoke and no fire. Um, and, and my point with that was that, look, it, it, Christians can do exactly what Rachel Held Evans um, wanted us to do, which is to you know stop talking about sex and just go serve people in need. That's exactly what Samaritan's Purse did in New York last year at the height of the COVID uh, epidemic there. And yet the response was still the same. It was this obsession with sex. And I, I guess my point with that was uh, that the obsession with sex is often not on our side. Often it is on you know, the progressive side. And we need to respond to that with, you know, w- both with the knowledge that we're not doing this, we're not serving the the needy and the poor and the sick and the, you know, overflow from hospitals because we're trying to win political points or or, or even persuade anybody right. to join our cause or our faith. We're doing it because that's who we are. That's who our Savior is. And that's what we were uh, commanded to do was to go and, and do good works. And, 
yeah, there, you know, there's going to be probably um, a sort of a knock-on effect of of softening people to the faith. That does often happen, but that's not our primary purpose. We don't do it as a strategy. We do it as obedience to Christ's commands. And it was kind of shocking to me, too, to have them basically shut down the effort of this field hospital. It was at a time when we really didn't know quite as much about COVID. And and nobody, you could almost say nobody in their right mind would run in there to help other COVID patients because you might get it yourself. And yet here was Samaritan's Purse in there serving people independent of their background. My hat is off to Samaritan's Purse in that case in, uh, in particular. Yeah, they did a great job with that. And it was, you know, they didn't make it political at any point. They no. were very clear that if, uh, you know, someone of uh, of a particular gender or, or sexual orientation persuasion walks in uh, and needs treatment, we're going to treat them exactly like we would treat anyone else. There is sure. no discrimination here. It, it reminded me a lot of the whole Chick-fil-A fiasco a few years ago where, um, you know, the Kathy family was just lambasted as being this uh, set of, of, of bigoted – um, uh, discriminatory folks who, you know, who wouldn't serve LGBT people or um, were out to push their values on someone. When, when really, that was the furthest thing from the truth possible. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's never been any instance where uh, Truett or Dan Cathy was discriminatory. In fact, they, uh, 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 Dan Cathy made some real notable efforts to sort of reach out to and befriend leaders in the, you know. Uh, in the gay community. And it wasn't because he was, you know, approving of their lifestyle. It was because he wanted to show them the love of Christ. And he did that. And there was even one journalist who sort of, you know, after going with him to some football games, said, you know what, uh, I have to rethink my my view of this guy because he's not so bad after all. <laughs> um, it, so, so, you know, that, that just goes to show that we we need to be careful how seriously we take these demands that yeah. we uh, change the way we approach the world and stop talking about sex because often we're really not the ones um, bringing it up, Dan. Often it's sort of a, a conversation that the culture forces on us. And that mm. was what you and I really talked about over email recently. Mm. You you had asked, um, what do you say to the charge that yeah. we're just obsessed with sex and we won't stop talking about it? And I quoted that sort of um, uh, that sort of uh, uncertain Martin Luther quote, which is, you know, it's a great quote. We're not sure if Luther said it. It's sort of a, um, an apocryphal quote. But he he mentioned how, um, or whoever said it, mentioned that if we, you know, profess with the loudest voice um, all of the counsel of God in every other area, except that one area where the battle is raging the hottest at the moment, you know, then we're just deserting. We're just, mm. uh, it is, uh, you know, it's a, uh, dereliction of duty, and that's what I think is true in our culture. What is the where does the battle rage right now? Yeah. Does it rage, you know, on the issue of uh, uh, you, you, some of the issues in the Greco-Roman world? Is it the is it the subjugation of women and the paterfamilias being able to do whatever he wants in the family? No, we're not going to challenge that because that's not where our culture is. Our culture is in a place where where we're attacking the very concept of male and female and the purpose of sex and um, and the rights of children. And, and that's, of course, why we're going to be talking about this so much as Christians, because we're calling people back to the truth and to God's created order. Yeah. Well, today we're talking with Shane Morris of the Colson Center. 
And it's a great honor to have you on the uh, Skype line with us today, Shane. Um, I feel like I'm talking to someone maybe the age of my son, just (laughs) so so people know that uh, I'm the old toad in this discussion today. Um, Speaking of that, let's talk about home life just a little bit and education. And I, I, I believe that you were, what, homeschooled? I was homeschooled for a number of years. We sort of shifted into a hybrid model where yeah. uh, my parents had us in a, in a local co-op. So a bunch of the um, homeschooling families got together, hired these teachers. Some of them you know, were themselves homeschooling parents. Sure. And they taught things like Latin and chemistry and algebra. And, um, and that really helped supplement my middle school and high school education. Um, and in the meantime, I was doing some things like um, national, the, uh, the, the national Christian, uh, debate leagues, speech and debate, mm-hmm. um, YMCA's youth and government program and, and doing a bunch of like political campaigning and things like that with friends. So it's remarkable supplemented the whole thing. And, and sometimes, uh, people misunderstand homeschooling and it's not always ideal. Nothing's ideal, but uh, they said, oh, you're going to be stunted. You know, you're not, you're not going to be educated. You're not going to learn how to get along with people. Um, from your experience, it looks like it really worked out for you. I think the usual charge is uh, kids will lack socialization, <laughs> right? They won't, have the, they won't have the kind of peer relationships that will help them to understand how to get along in society. And my, my answer to that is usually, hey, talk to your average homeschooler five years after graduating and talk to your average public schooler. Um, over the same time frame and tell me who is more well adjusted into, you know, adult working or, or higher education life. It's usually, it typically is the homeschoolers, unless you're just talking Mm -hmm. about a very, uh, a very privileged sort of private school background. Can you tell us a little bit more? Probably some folks are just starting to think about homeschooling their children. What about that hybrid model that you mentioned? Did that work out well for you? It did work out well. So my kids right now are in a local classical Christian school because that's the opportunity that opened up for us. And it's going to, you know, it's teaching the same uh, values and subjects that we would. But, um, you know, we have people who are really experienced with it. But I got something very similar with co-ops and co-ops are a super common um, method for homeschooling or supplementing homeschooling, where mm-hmm. um, in, in my case, this local large Baptist church hosted a homeschool group, and they would help coordinate classes um, at, a, at a number of other local churches. And we would go there twice a week and, you know, get the, get the assignments for home, and we'd go and do the homework and then come back and, you know, sort of had class time. And it got me used to a very, um, you know, structured, in-class environment, sure. those kinds of uh, those kinds of independent standards, and the wonderful peer pressure that comes from, you know, having a bunch of other classmates who are doing the coursework, and well, you don't want to fall behind and in front of them, so you want, you know, you want to do well. But it's not like with your parents where they're demanding you do the work, and and you just like, okay, mom, okay, dad, you know, I'll get it done when I when I can. There, no, you actually. You kind of have to answer to uh, someone, someone else in that yeah. case, and I like that. That's right. Now, God's led you. Uh, he's provided a wife for you, and you have, th- what, three children? Three children, eight, six, and four. Oh, you guys are busy. <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, let's. Um, we have maybe ten minutes left yet, um, if you have enough time, and that is um, I'd like to talk about um, – the uh, the view that you have there at the Colson Center, I, I, I feel 
an endearment to the Colson Center. I, I've talked with John before. He reminded us that, um, you know, the, the pattern that you have in your mind is that of creation, fall, redemption, and um, restoration. restoration. Yeah, right. I think that's just a beautiful pattern. Um, can you describe the idea of restoration, how that the gospel, you know, we know Jesus finally comes at the end of history, mm-hmm. but we don't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs, do we? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, there was a series that Acton Institute put out a number of years ago called For the Life of the World, and it was based really uh, closely on the teachings of Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian, statesman, uh, as well as Herman Bovink, who was a systematic theologian who worked closely with Kuyper. And the question that series centered on was, uh, what are we saved for? And that's a question that often gets neglected in in evangelical circles where we are focused primarily on getting people saved, you know, getting them into the kingdom and then going out and making more disciples. And the question, what are we saved for, really focuses us on a neglected element of the New Testament, uh, which is the second half of the Great Commission. Teach, uh, you know, it's go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded right. you. And that me- that encompasses, Dan, the whole, uh, you know, counsel of God, the creation design that he set in place uh, that's witnessed to throughout the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law, and then finally re- uh, consummated and summarized in the uh, in the evangelical commands, you know, love um, the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And in in those, Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets are summarized. And I think that when we orient ourselves toward um, the the purpose for our salvation and the purpose for us still being here, right, not getting zapped immediately into heaven <laughs> when we are when we're saved, it causes us to. Um, you know, expands our horizons and causes us to realize the full scope of salvation. You know, Jesus came not just to win a place in heaven for people. In fact, heaven, as N.T. Wright uh, is so famous for writing, is not even really our eternal destiny. It's resurrection on the new earth. That's true. Um, We often forget that. That's very true. Right, right. So if that's true, then it means that our work here is uh, supposed to be focused on um, bringing God's kingdom to bear in very tangible ways. In our world, you know, the Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. So the way that God's will is done in heaven, Jesus prays and urges us to pray as well, that it'll be done in the same way here on earth. And I think that's the that's the process of his kingdom expanding like the uh, like the leaven that was put in the 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 dough in the parable and worked its way through or the the, the stone that becomes a mountain that fills the whole world Amen. you see this progression of the kingdom um, yeah, working its way through all of the institutions of culture and of uh, and of society and ultimately subjecting those things to the rule of Christ and, and what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 he says that Christ is now reigning and he must reign until all enemies have been made a footstool for him. And Amen. then finally, the last enemy that will be defeated is death. And we play a wonderful role in that. We don't understand exactly wh- uh, you know, how our work here in this current state of the world um, will pass on into the resurrection, into the new creation. But we do have confidence and a promise that what we do here matters eternally, not just temporarily. And that means more than just getting people saved, although certainly not less. It means that um, our work here 
is uh, directly related to God's work in restoring all things. In fact, we are his hands and feet. We are the body of Christ now and here, and uh, what we do matters. So that's, I think that's really the gist of what you're getting at there with the, the question about what it means for restoration to mm. be a part of our lives right now after we are redeemed. Well, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Uh, in the last uh, several minutes, um, maybe we can talk about, um, you You guys have a section on your website where you kind of answer questions, and um, maybe one or two questions that have kind of come to the top of the list, as it were, in your mind. Uh, what's a common question that people have today that you deal with on your website? Well, by far the most common question we get, Dan, is how to deal with some of the new demands of the sexual orthodoxies that are, you know, coming down from our culture. That's what we opened up talking about, and it's the thing that many Christians, um, you know, myself included, wish we could just stop talking about for a while. Yeah. In fact, we we have to sort of filter out the questions, otherwise the uh, Q and A podcast that John and I do on a weekly basis, John Stone Street and I. Um, will just become nothing but talking about transgenderism and mm. how to deal with, you know, my coworker who has, uh, you know, who wants me to use these these new pronouns or um, this program that requires me to teach students in my school that uh, boys aren't necessarily boys and girls aren't necessarily girls, that sort of thing. And so we get these questions from teachers and doctors and scientists and um, <clears throat> and business people and employees in you know, department stores and any number of professions you can imagine who are just asking, how do I deal with these demands that I knuckle under to this new sexual orthodoxy that's redefining human beings and male and female? And how do I be faithful to that? And it's caused us to develop what we what John calls the theology of getting fired. And I don't remember whether that's his original phrase mm-hmm. or whether um, another writer came up with it. But we use it a lot because there does come a point when we have advised um, people who write us in to make a stand that they may need to say, you know what, I'm not going to tell a lie. I'm not going to uh, call this person uh, by their preferred uh gender, even though that's company policy, because I don't want to contribute to that delusion. That's a, yes. that's harming this person. And I loving them means telling them the truth. So that's one thing we've had to sort of tell people to prepare for is the idea that you may have to, you know, your convictions and your employment may become incompatible at some point. Um, we get a bunch of other questions. Another one we often get is resources for, uh, for young people who, especially from grandparents, who who are just being exposed to a whole different and um, an anti-Christian way of looking at the world. And many of the adults in their lives, particularly pastors, parents, and grandparents, <clears throat> are often at a loss as to how to counter some of these claims and assumptions and how even to you know, begin to dig under them and figure out where they're coming from. So one of the things that I really strive to do on Upstream and that John and I have strived to do in answering these questions is to get to the source of, uh, of ideas that are affecting particularly young people, assumptions that um, shape them without them really understanding where they're coming from or why they believe them. And the, the chief example that comes to mind is this idea, again, connected with sex, that I am primarily a product of 
the feelings that I discern within myself, right? My selfhood is constituted mainly by certain attractions or affinities that I discern through introspection. And then, mm. uh, and then I seek to externalize into my surrounding world or to express upon my uh, surrounding world. And that's been the subject of a couple of really important recent books that we've sort of filtered through our, our work and, and cited continually. But getting, uh, getting people of my generation and even the younger generation to begin to ask questions about, well, why do I think that? Why do I have that instinct? Why, what is it about my worldview and my catechesis in whatever, secular culture, public school, popular media, that causes me to, uh, to receive the claim, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa, as plausible? Why does that sound workable to me? Why mm. does it make sense to me? Because that would not have made sense to anyone in, in prior generations, prior to just a few years ago, in fact. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, the answer to that question gets you to the heart of, uh, of the project of worldview, why you think the way you do, why you assume the things you do, and um, what sounds plausible. And it, it, that, that does two things. You know, It helps you to unpack our cultural moment and to realize how strange it is. But Dan, it also, I think, trains people how to think. It trains young people in particular how to begin to discern uh, cultural patterns and trends and the sources of those trends and not to be passive recipients or, uh, as I like to say on upstream, flotsam who are just drifting down the cultural river uh, in the currents without understanding or having any ability to swim or navigate them. I want people to be able to swim. I want uh, Christians to understand what's what's causing them to think the way they do, what's causing them, to, what's causing their neighbors to think and feel the way they do, and how to how to seek out truth and objective reality, not just merely to be, you know, subject to those forces. Mm. Well, beautiful discussion. Uh, thank God for you, Shane Morris, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Shane is with the Colson Center, and one last time, uh, an address if people would like to look you up and particularly listen to that upstream podcast. Yeah, the best place to go will be colsoncenter.org forward slash upstream. Okay, beautiful. Shane Morris, my dear brother, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dan. This was fun. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. 